Welcome back to another episode of the Break Magazine Secret Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. This week's podcast, we dove into a bunch of topics from the internet. So the premise was for me and my dad, Sai, to talk through some of those common things that the internet suggests are really good or blanket statements they make, such as put bar risers on your bike or pivot pegs. You should get some of these. They're amazing. And that GS is terrible because it weighs too much. That is the premise of our conversation. And in it, we dive into all of the pros and cons of what works with those statements, what doesn't work, why you should be trying them, why you shouldn't be trying them, and whether they're just terrible ideas or statements in general. Uh, it was a really fun conversation. It was supposed to be an hour. It wasn't an hour. It was slightly more, one fifteen. It was hard to stop both of us talking. We got on our high horses. We got, uh, yeah, and talked through those subjects. It was a very fun conversation. And I hope you enjoy this first episode from my new living room. I have moved house, as I told you uh, I was. Um, I hope it sounds okay. It should do. It's quite quiet in here. There's not too much echo. So hopefully it doesn't sound too bad. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy it. To start off our conversation about accessories, their worthiness, what they're good for and what they're not good for, I'm going to go right in with accessory number one when most people buy a Touratech catalog maybe not a Touratech catalog so much these days but when most people turn up with an adventure bike and easily one of the most common questions I get on any setup video any riding position video you will find a question about bar risers so I also think dad you are the king of bar riser opinions so if anyone's, set... ever, if anyone's ever made the mistake on the off-road school of asking dad to have bar risers on their bike, over to you. Are you setting me up to be the um, the bad guy right from the start here? Well, with bar risers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Not... Um, yeah, so um, I'm out, guys. It's been uh, nice talking to you. I'll be off now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going to put my phone on silent before I forget. Mm. Yeah, okay. so bar risers. So, yeah, they are a, they are, um, a subject that uh, I do have an opinion on. <laughs> and um, I, think, I think the thing is that people always sort of just grab a set of bar risers and as soon, as the first time they stand up on a motorbike and it feels a little bit awkward, their solution is to read the internet and then fix it by putting bar risers on. And uh, for me, I think it's really, really important that you don't then stop yourself from improving as a rider by ending up in a bad riding position. So there is a place for bar risers, but the, the challenge is to first work out what your problem is or your challenge, your difficulty is and, and kind of learn to improve your body movement on the bike and improve your body position on the bike first so that you understand the reason you're then choosing to put bar risers on or not um and i you know i have been through this process with quite a few tall people before and when we're talking tall we're definitely talking six foot two up i think 187 190 193 people in that sort of category 
Yeah, and, and even with a person that tall, you know, we've I've explained this logic to them and we've made sure the handlebars are in the correct position first, you know, which, which is always super important. And there is definitely a, a correct position for handlebars where they are, you know, you can see that in one of your videos for, with, without a doubt. And, you know, I think if you go that, that is something if you go across the internet and talk to any um, experienced professional, semi-professional rider, then the handlebar position is, you know, that is a thing it, it, where the ends of the bars are, are level. Um, first of all is to get that right and then to go through the detail of good standing position and good body movement and give it time and then get comfortable with those things before we start uh, changing the cockpit dramatically and never then being able to get our standing position right because the cockpit's wrong. And, you know, with handlebar risers, the danger always is, is that you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of just moving the contact points, the critical contact points on the bike to the wrong place. So the bike doesn't handle as it was designed to handle anymore. Well, I, but, I think yeah. one of the things we've noticed as well a lot uh, especially I've started to kind of pick up on this recently and maybe this is maybe in this position I'm guilty of that thing that like they say doctors get where they learn about a new illness in med school and then the next week every single patient they have gets tested for that illness and I've only just figured this out but when you move the handlebars from that quite neutral position where they're flat and you're in a standing position the way you interact with the handlebars when you move them and you move your hands and so on changes. And essentially what happens is when you're stood up well, this is my idea with it anyway, is that your your riding position should mean that when you want to change direction and you're stood up, if you use the handlebars to do that, you push down on them. But if you change the handlebar position by putting bar rises on them or so on, you change the interaction you have with the bike and the subsequent effect it has over the handling and essentially, you turn it into more of a counter-steering action, which is a much more aggressive, rough action. And it just doesn't work as well. I think we've seen that both through the school, but also in my own riding on my own dirt bike. I've got handlebars on there that are, at the moment, I bent the original ones when I had an enormous crash. And I just grabbed a set that you had in the workshop. I didn't tell you this. I stole some handlebars from your workshop. <laughs> I just grabbed a set that were lying around and they were Magura MX2s. It turns out that handlebar is really tall and really wide, which for me is nice. I'm tall. But the, the subsequent consequence of that is that when I was riding an enduro bike, they were too tall. And my interaction with the handlebars wasn't good. And it meant that especially when I was sitting down or when I was in a really like attack position, it's actually a little bit hard to ride because my movements are oversensitive. Like when I touch the handlebar in a corner, it's really aggressive, even though I'm only touching it a tiny bit and it's causing the front to fold. And I think if you're doing that, even when you change from a small handlebar to a big handlebar, which is a rise of a few mil. at most 10 mil, like what's the, what's the lowest handlebar rise to the biggest handlebar rise difference on a dirt bike? You're talking like maybe a 55 to a, a 70 or something which is less than most bar risers and it really messes with the handling and that's even when the handlebars are still in a good position when you go to a bar riser the handlebars automatically come closer which changes your 
you, the changes the geometry of the bike essentially because they're in a different position and so your interaction with it just becomes dramatically different really really quickly and i think that is one of the things that is most underestimated like bar risers are always a quick fix but the way i kind of think about them is that maybe they should be used yeah, as like a cheap solution to discover whether the that is a good direction to go so if you try bar risers and you're like ah this is better actually what you should then do is sell the bar risers on ebay and go and buy a set of handlebars that are taller yeah okay yeah i'm not going to disagree with that there's some logic to that for sure but i, I think i think yeah, the issue I always have with people putting bar risers on is it's not a thought out process. It's just like, here's a thing in the catalog. Oh, I put them on, I stand up, I'm more comfortable standing. And it's a short term, it's a short term um, band aid fix to a problem that's then very limiting and, 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 you know, limits your progress as a motor, you know, as a rider. And that, that that's what I want to see people do is I want people make that decision to change their handlebars or put bar risers on based on you you know um helping them to improve their riding and 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 that way around where you're fairly new to off-road and you're not comfortable standing so you put a handlebar riser on to make it more comfortable standing it, you know that that's a, that's what i say for me that's limiting it stops your progress a little bit further down the line in your learning in your learning uh, journey you've got to you've got to work out how to stand well first and to be balanced on the bike first um you know that's why when we do the school we spend a lot of time getting people to ride around one-handed and no-handed because you know the good standing position doesn't come from the handlebars the handlebars are a place to put your hands to use the controls you know they, they so you, you know you need to way. fix that other problem first and and you know, we're all always learning in this stuff as well. Like I don't, you know, I don't profess to know it all about it. But a great example for me is, you know, my personal journey is, is um, you know, fairly recently I've started using a tall seat on all my bikes and I'm not really tall enough to, you know, to deal with a, like to, for a tall seat to be comfortable when I'm stopped, but it's much more comfortable for me to, to you know, to ride with. So I'm kind of having to, be a little bit better again. I'm already not bad at it, but a little bit better again, get better at being able to get my foot on the ground when I'm in an awkward situation because it's helping my riding, having that little bit taller seat because it's easier for me to transition from seeing to standing a little bit because I've got an old injury. But, um, you know, sometimes I've seen it, I've seen that scenario with your tall rider as well, where it's much easier or much better for the handling of the bike and for them to continue to improve, to change to work out that they don't need bar risers. The bar risers are actually great. They're, you know, the standard handlebars are in a great position for the handling of the bike. So actually let's move the seat or let's move the foot pegs, you know, or take the foot pegs a little bit lower, for example. I think that's like a really holistic conversation when you're talking about bikes up as well, because when you move foot pegs, you also encounter the same problem. Like in the yes. project bike we had, I deliberately moved the foot pegs backwards and lower to change the moment to give me more control because essentially when the foot pegs were too high, I didn't have enough leverage over that bike left and right. So when I tried yeah, to that, make that, it that, steer, it didn't turn. So if you lower that, the foot that, pegs, you change that as well, do you know? And that, that's it. Well, you know, that's exactly my point really is let's not, let's not change the bar risers 
as the first thing you do on a bike before you've even ridden it or the first thing when you are finding riding off-road a little bit nervous and a little bit awkward and you stand up and it feels awkward so change your handlebars at that moment like that's the wrong way around for me you know you've been riding for however long and you've got your own your own uh you know your own skill set and your own limits on your own skill set and you kind of know what they are and so then you're changing something and you're sort of seeing oh well that's what that changed i like it or i don't like it and i'm totally okay with that if someone's already sort of you know we've had a, a, a quite a few times where we've got our you know our friends from sweden that come over and they're all at least seven foot three um and but they're all already you know they've already got to the point where they're like level three plus riders and now now when they come to me and go hey i'd like a set of bar risers or you know and 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 again they're you know they're all really tall and some of them want bar risers and some of them don't but they've got to the point where they've worked out for themselves you know what their riding position is and what's holding them back in their riding and they're making that choice based on that not oh i'm not i'm not happy standing up so i'm going to put a set of bar risers on like you know we've as you know we've had people turn up and it's like their second time off road and they're and they're you know they're five foot eight and they've got bar risers on their bikes and and to me that's like that's not a decision that you've made by yourself that's a decision that the internet's made for you so do you do you in that same conversation of bar risers, not all bar risers are made equal. Uh, of course. And, yeah. and you have that, that rocks riser style bar riser where you can, mm -hmm. you can rotate the handlebars forwards or backwards. And obviously some people, you know, in their conversation of their riding, and we're talking about this. Sorry, guys, I need coffee. That's all right. What are you doing? He hasn't. Pouring milk at the... Yeah, because I bought the whole flask of coffee with me, see? <laughs> <laughs> so I've got... You know, I need a lot of coffee to get through these kind of conversations this early in the morning. One of us yes, told you this. He's making he's making me do this podcast at 4.30 a.m. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's winter. <laughs> Look how light my scene is. No one's <laughs> believing it. Okay. It's the middle of the day. Yeah. The, the, you know, hey, like with the whole aftermarket, again, there's products that are better than others. There's products that are more expensive than others. And those two things don't necessarily equate. And again, that's sort of my point, really, is like if, if you're at the point where you understand yourself and you're riding well enough that you're thinking oh i could actually do with the bars a little bit higher or a little bit different position then you've got that opportunity to go out to the internet and buy the bar buy the bar riser that is just a 10 mil spacer and you know is is correspondingly relatively cheap and um but it has its downsides because it doesn't look as cool it's a cheaper looking product and it moves the handlebars up and backwards you know so the rocks ones a great example a different product for sure a little bit more expensive great advantage in that it not only comes up but then you can also rotate the base of the handlebar forwards and backwards um you know that and all these products always have a plus and minus and and that's a real plus for those with me that they roll forwards but the minus is is that then that's a you know, it's a, it's a minimum height that you have to go up with those rocks ones because they're effectively making two sets of clamps. You, you know, there's no there's no rocks one that just goes up just a little bit. It always goes up substantially. Yeah, they're like three, it goes They're like thirty mil at least, aren't they? Yeah, and you know, I'm I mean, that would definitely be too much for me. You know, I, I'm I'm definitely quite sensitive to that. Like you say, you know, there are dirt bikes. You change the bend of the bars and. They're two inches. Now, I don't speak inches. I'm sure one of our 50. many Patreon, but what's that, like 54? 50, 50 mil. 50 mil. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Exactly. 
So and ah, so I and and we're talking about this conversation. I have just pulled up. I don't know how to share this. I'll probably put this in afterwards. I've just uh, I've just jumped on the Rocks Riser website to have a look at how big their risers are. But hey, like you said, there's also the you know there's also I think the much missed point, and uh, of course it's an expensive way to do it. It's an expensive experiment. But, you know, there are lots of different handlebar bends out there. And, you, you know, you had some for the V-Strom as well with the, um, the flex bars as well. You know, yeah. there's a lot of different ways you can go with trying to change that cockpit. But like when you make any change to something that affects the handling of the bike, you know, we'll always argue that you want to make small incremental changes with that. And sometimes that's difficult when you're buying parts, aftermarket parts, because it can be an expensive change that takes yeah. you in the wrong direction. Yeah, it can. And, and you know, at the end of the day with adventure bikes, we're not talking about it like we're trying to win a, a national championship in enduro. You're just trying to get it relatively in the ballpark, right? So Yeah, or you're trying to be comfortable, aren't you? So you enjoy your ride. So do you think there's do you think there's a, a a place for things like bar risers? And I think this leads into one of our other podcast notes points of of using a bar riser to get comfortable so that once you're comfortable you can start to figure out the other things. Or do you think that is not like just not a good way to go? No, I think that I think that stops you improve you know, you that you then get fixed in that body position you know we've seen it many many times haven't we where people don't quite work out the good body position early in their riding and then they become quite good riders with a with an awkward body position but it always becomes the the limit of them learning the next thing quickly you know then it then it can take a long much longer to work out the next progression in the skill when you don't sort those when i think those core movements and core body positions out early in your riding Hmm. and and that's that's why i really get sort of strong on let's not whack the bar risers on until we understand a few other things and if you understand these things and you feel it and you get it and you you know and then you decide you want handlebars you know the 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 boots is falls in the same category we have this conversation at the start of every off-road school careful (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I, I know, but I'm not going to go deep into boots here. But, but it's the same conversation, you know. If someone wants to wear a set of trainers to go adventure riding, um, and they're someone that's been adventure riding for 30 years, and they're making that choice because they're happy with it and they're experienced and they're, you know, they're making that decision from a position of knowledge and understanding, I'm totally fine with that. Like we all take our own choices with that stuff. But at the start of your journey, you, you kind of need to learn from other, you know, the majority of other people's experience and skill set. Like that, that's the point of going on the internet and scouring around and reading all these different forums and views and everything is to is to garner some information and make choices to sort of shorten that learning journey. Otherwise, you go back to Gwyn and my day when we learned to ride by there was no choice but getting on a bike and crashing into a brick wall because there wasn't. The consequences there wasn't, were high. <laughs> Yeah, and then there wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't the depth of information that we've got now. So we've got all this information. Let's use it in a discerning way. Okay, so I think it's time to move on from bar risers to yeah, because the internet's second. I've been, I've been relaxed. Oh, you'll start to get me angry. <laughs> to the internet's second most recommended adventure accessory, and I think part of the reason that these have become ubiquitous is because they make them for so many bikes. And it's hard to get foot pegs that are not 
that are in the same price bracket for those bikes and that is pivot pegs now when i had that v-strom and i was trying to find products for it if you google v-strom 650 foot pegs they're the first ones and by far the sharpest biggest ones that come up and it's the same if you own a klr or something else otherwise you have to know the brand you're looking for go investigating it remembering to turn your phone off <laughs> and so on and i think you know with pivot pegs as a brand they've done a really good job but they're obviously a very different product to a standard foot peg so what do you what do you feel about pivot pegs and how they work and how they don't work and how they affect your ability to control the bike um I, no i'm probably I, I i'm do you know what i I haven't spent enough time on them, if I'm honest, to form an opinion for myself. I've ridden, I've ridden quite a few dirt bikes with them and quite a few adventure bikes with them, but always on the basis of, you know, that's been a kind of something I've tested for a day or loaned for a day. Um, and I think that, uh, they're probably something you actually learn, need to live with for a while to really make uh, a good call on them. I, I know a few people that race that love them. Um, I, I definitely know more people that race that have tried them and not love them. Um, I'm not, I'm not a fan. I'm not rushing out to buy a set myself every time I get on them and ride them. Don't feel like I have that same connection or contact but I think that's probably I just, you know, I think there's a little bit of an argument there that you need a bit more time with them because when you ride a bicycle, you have a pedal that moves a little bit and you work that out pretty quick. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not really a sort of for or against with them, actually. I don't know what else I can say very, about that. Very uh, nonpartisan of you. So I, well, I, yeah. I was quite... Uh, I suppose fortunate. Um, I got to borrow my my partner Lucy, her dad's bike, and he has a set of pivot pegs on there. Um, and I'd always, I'd only ever ridden on them really briefly before I rode his bike, uh, and had a really bad opinion of them because immediately they felt they felt so alien, and because of the way that they move, it felt to me very much like you had worse contact, even though your the the peg the peg was moving with your foot peg. And I tried two different types: the proper pivot peg ones that snap back to the center because they're spring loaded, and the ones that are cheaper don't have a spring mechanism and they kind of stay in place. Now the stay in place ones, I can't get my head around because it it it's too inconsistent. If you take your foot off and move it to a forward position, suddenly the foot peg's just not really there. But it kind of felt like you went from having a really bad, a big platform to push on to having a really small platform to push on because it, you don't have the feel of the foot peg in your boot. Um, and when I borrowed David's bike, we went to a practice day together and I, for the first 40 minutes, I thought they were the worst thing I'd ever ridden on. I was like, so uncoordinated on them i couldn't get my head around it uh but as you just touched on over the course of the day uh, and i think this happens a lot with any bike you start to adapt to the changes that exist within it and they sort of get assimilated into you and you learn the pattern of what's happening and you develop that muscle memory right um and uh, it was really interesting because 
by the end of the day, it didn't really seem to make that much difference. There's a few things I did notice about them, which I still don't really like. Um, And the first one is on an enduro bike specifically, we do a lot of transition from sitting to standing. And normally when I transition from standing to sitting, I will readjust my feet. But it's kind of actually a little bit difficult to readjust your feet on a pivot peg. And I'm not quite sure why. And I also noticed when I, and I think you probably have this on a bicycle a little bit, is why when you're taught to ride bicycles well, you're taught to ride really heels down because it kind of locks you in place a bit more. But when you transition to having a lot of weight on one foot, it can move a little bit, which takes some getting used to. But the the biggest thing is when I transitioned my body from standing, like a braking position to a sitting position, I repeatedly stood on the back brake by accident because I wasn't readjusting my foot and my massive foot out of the way of the back brake. Because when I ride, I've obviously my feet are a size UK 12, which is a US 13, a Euro 47 for those who love their <laughs> shoe wear sizes and uh <laughs> wow <laughs> and so i when i ride normally when i transition to that sitting position i take my foot off and i readjust it back to the ball of my foot and then if i want the back brake i will move my foot to the back brake there's a lot of moving there it's probably not the most efficient way but it's how i have to do it to not accidentally stand on the back brake all the time and with a pivot peg i found that really difficult like even at the end of the day when i was really used to how they worked I don't know what it is about that design, but I was struggling to move my feet in the same way. And because they move, it also felt a bit weird with how I typically push on the outside foot peg. I normally use the front of the foot peg. That's very dirt bike specific though. In terms of an adventure bike, I I actually found them really comfortable. Like the standing position in them, by the end of the day, they were super comfortable, probably more comfortable than a regular foot peg because when you stand up in a normal position, the the platform that you're stood on is is quite thin, actually. Just, right? just one edge of the one peg or the other. The peg, right? Whereas on yeah. the pivot peg, you're, you're using the whole peg, so you've kind of got a bigger platform to work with when you're in that that nice riding position. It was lovely. You're, um, yeah. you're, you're, uh, you're tempting me to try a sit. <laughs> do, you, do you know, I was really surprised because I, I did have quite a negative opinion about, and I think if you're at a peak performance level, I would be surprised, you, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know more riders that don't like them but when we're talking about that i think you're always talking about people who have learned in a really specific way you learn with a Mm. fixed foot peg you learn to get really really exceptionally good using that equipment and then when you change something fundamental it's confusing it it takes time to learn but actually in that scenario i was really like kind of okay with it you know if I, if I if i was riding a klr 650 and it had pivot pegs and i was just bimbling across the the states i would be perfectly okay with how well they rode and i don't think they negatively impacted my ability to ride the bike apart from i think there's a little bit of a design thing that's strange you know we ride we're quite lucky to ride a lot of bicycles and one thing that's really coveted in bicycle pedals is the gap between the top of the pedal and the top of the spindle and the thinner that pedal is the better it feels because the you're not pivoting over yeah you're not rolling over the top because on a pivot peg you have the pivot is quite low and then the top of the foot peg is quite a bit higher so when you transition from being backwards to forwards your body has to go up and over that pivot which feels weird like that is definitely maybe you need to tell them that well i maybe i do but i 
you know, maybe they watch this podcast. I doubt it that there's anyone from Pivot Pegs on Patreon watching this podcast. But that was kind of one of the things that I thought was was actually one of the bigger limits of of their of that product. On but you know, that, bike, those, on those things you just awesome. Well, and those things you've just described, they're like they're actually kind of the same as even when you go to a rally peg, you know, which we've got on our Dakar bikes, and I've used those kind of rally pegs on a adventure bike as well. And as soon as you go to that massive foot peg, it's fantastic when you've got standing up all day yeah. because you've suddenly got this huge platform under your boot instead of a narrow little thing so like the comfort is much better mm-hmm. um and you know the kind of the, the kind of steering the bike in high speed scenarios is much better because you've suddenly got this extra width to to leverage on mm-hmm. but the downside is is you have exactly what you just described on the on the pivot peg where when you actually get into a bit more technical terrain, you can't move your foot in the peg because the platform's sort of too big and too good and you get hooked up on the foot peg and you go to have a dab, you can't get your foot off, or you go for the back brake, you can't get to the back brake. Like, you know, I think that that's where there's like, like again, a little compromise there. And, you know, I love those big rally pegs, but if you're riding more technical terrain, they can actually be a little bit, a, a little bit risky. Like, you know, there is definitely this sort of optimum, optimum size. I think that's probably um, yeah, why so- KTM 790s, even though it's an adventure bike, still comes with the standard EXE peg because, you know, the, the cost of production in metal to produce that slightly bigger peg is not 180 quid, is it? It's going to be no. three or four dollars max, whatever. I'm mixing. But, uh, there. So, so that's just, just- definitely like a handling decision that they're making. And I think that yeah, the final the final bit for me is you know where this is a, a different subject to the bar rises. You remember we um, we went to um, Vancouver Island a few years ago and we borrowed a couple of bikes there and we had KLRs. They had pivot pegs on them, and uh, and then we I had I had a 450 Husaberg that had pivot pegs and bar rises. Sounds and like we were riding. Like, yeah, exactly. And um, and it was someone else's borrowed bike, so I was like. Eh, you know, go with it, just ride it. I'm sure it's good. The guy was a decent rider. And um, and uh, the pivot pegs, are, you know, it was sort of almost the opposite way around where for the first 10 minutes, the pivot pegs annoyed the hell out of me and the bar risers were like, weren't such a problem. But we were riding like single track all, all day for two days and um, the pivot pegs I soon forgot about and didn't really bother me that much. But the bar risers, I got to the end of the first day, I actually had to take them off because I literally couldn't, ride this you know the, all the tight corners i just couldn't go through the corners how i know i can ride kind of thing yeah, so yeah. You, you you know that that was a much bigger difference for me so there you go pivot pegs give them a go if you like them or they're the only option you know if you've got or one of those bikes option. where you're like yeah. oh yeah i've got like a, an old bike pivot pegs probably make something for your bike they seem to make a pivot pig for it a pig and, a peg for everything and and i think the one thing we will definitely agree on is that you know your foot pegs are actually the most important controls on the bike so oh, yeah, having yeah, foot pegs yeah. can actually use regardless of what your flavor is but puts that you can use is essential so if you have got like a lot of adventure bikes these days that still come with a a very small road bike style foot peg get then rid of them what get rid of them exactly that's yeah. a certain 100 percent. so uh that's a that's a commit that 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 is a great first upgrade to your bike so number four but actually number three, because I'm skipping over number three for now. It's less important. Oh. 
Oh, come on, give us a little take. What does the internet say number three is? Well, it was Scott Oilers, but I don't really care that much. Oh, okay. They're, you know, no. they're, well, well, whatever. That's personal. If you practice. care about that, buy a shaft drive bike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, oh, there goes the internet. There, you've solved, uh, you've solved that in 14 seconds. I think that was probably quicker than any ADV rider forum has ever solved something. So uh, number four, and I personally have very mixed feelings about this one, which I'm sure we'll get into, is low seats or suspension lowering of bikes. Should you, should you not? And when should you and when should you not? Oh, wow. We need another two hours now. <laughs> you've got, you've got, I, I'm going to give you 10 minutes. Okay. So is this a all in one subject? Are we talk? are we just suspension? Not suspension in uh, general, because we're going to do a whole episode on that very shortly about suspension. And I'm very excited to answer and ask some very complicated questions of someone that hopefully knows more than me. Uh, which wouldn't be hard, but no, this is specifically about making your bike lower because you are not such lower. a tall person. So low seat. Okay. So I'm going to, first of all, say this, this is a little bit dependent on where you are in your riding journey. Um, you, you know, the great thing about making a bike low uh, is it, gives you the opportunity to build confidence because for sure when you feel like the bike's too big and too tall for you it's difficult to build the confidence you need but as your confidence builds and grows it's important that you then use that confidence to kind of go back to using a bike that's got the ground clearance and suspension that you want to be able to do the things that you want to be able to do on that bike so I think that journey changes for people. And, you know, some great examples of that are um, Jenny that works for us. You know, she's never looking. She's 5'2". She's never looking for the small bike anymore. Um, when she's riding an adventure bike, for sure, she doesn't care. You know, she's got to that point in her riding journey where she doesn't care. Um, and with, with her trials bike, it obviously doesn't matter because she can put her feet on the ground on that. But with her enduro bike, because she's still, you know, progressing through that enduro bike journey um she is looking for a lower seat height and it's actually serving her really well and she's not using like the maximum suspension because her riding is not at that point where she's looking for that 300 mils of travel so you've got that kind of compromise on your journey as you ride you know you look at uh tay perry that did dakar last year mm-hmm. i think maybe even shorter if you look at the picture of her riding, you know, she's at the level where she's running top 30 on a Dakar stage, so she can ride a motorbike, and she's riding a full-size KTM rally bike, and it's kind of quite hilarious watching her at the start of the stage because she's she nowhere near being up. Rich. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, but, you know, for her, she's at the point where she needs all that suspension travel. She needs all that ground clearance, but the the height thing is not an issue anymore because the confidence is there. I think there's some other, I don't know if you follow them, there's some other great examples of, um, of that. There are a couple of Canadian girls that do enduro bike stuff on Instagram and they're both quite clearly very short, 
And, you know, recently they've been showing them uh, videos of themselves learning to do pivot turns on enduro bikes mm -hmm. and, you know, takes away the whole thing that, that, that height's an issue. Was that Matt um, Brap and Yeah, Crystal her and Crystal. Or, that's yeah. it. Yep, yep. You know, and um, but it, there's no way that you can start at that point. You know, you have to start um, by putting yourself in your comfort zone to build the confidence to learn those skill sets. So, you know, that's a time when sort of the opposite to what I said about bar rises where, you, you know, you, you're going to have a progression where don't, uh, so what did someone say to me recently? Don't buy your third bike as your first bike. <laughs> you know, oh, I think that's a Chris Birch line, isn't it? As well. That's yeah. Maybe, maybe Birch, you know, said that. Like, yeah. Start on a, yeah. start on the bike that's appropriate for what you're doing now. Don't buy, yeah. Don't yeah. buy a 500 EXE and, when you're a total beginner kind of vibe. Yeah. And accept that, except that that's a great journey as well. You know, that's all part of the fun of motorcycling, isn't it? It's like, this is my, this is my progression through, through bikes. So yeah, so that, that seat height thing and lowering the suspension, you know, both those things come with compromises in the overall motorcycle performance. You know, as soon as you lower the suspension, of course, you've then got less suspension travel to work with in terms of suspension performance. Um, and you've still got less ground clear, you know, you've got less ground clearance, but when you're at that part of your riding journey, you know, you're not, you're not using all the suspension and you're not going over obstacles so big that the ground clearance is an issue. You know, but as you get better, then the ground clearance starts to become a problem. You know, it can cause a crash. It can cause you to crash. So then you need to sort of go, all right, I'm at that level now. Stop worrying about the seat height thing. Start worrying about the fact I want to go over this big rock. I need a bit more suspension, a bit more ground clearance, and accept that that's the, that's the path. You know, just because you started off on a low bike doesn't mean you're going to be always on a low bike. Um well, it's quite you, you know, and, and we, we do it on the school, don't we? we we're like, but if you want to do a level three course, if you think you're at that point, then we're not running low bikes anymore because we're going to smash the bottom out of them and you're going to end up falling off because you caught the bottom of the bike. Mm. Well, I think it's quite interesting that you just touched on, and it's kind of something I've never thought about before. But in, in pretty much every other sport that I do, so like skiing or snowboarding, or if you do some horse riding, or even if you ride mountain bikes, there is this conversation about beginner accessories so like you buy a beginner snowboard and it's flexible and it's soft and it's easy and then when you get better you buy a stiffer but we don't have that in dirt bikes or street bikes there's no there's no this is a beginner bike there's bikes that are built for x and bikes that are built for y and maybe they'll cross those like lines but it's really interesting to me that we don't have that category where like BMW or KTM make a bike and they're like, hey, if you're a beginner, buy this one because it's easy and small and you'll learn and then buy that one. We kind of just pitch bikes at specific areas of people like a 390 adventure is built for India and they market it towards older people here who want a smaller bike i think that's what they say anyway that they think no, no, and, and I, you know it's kind I, of interesting that we don't just have like a crf 250l is the beginner category on honda's website and the medium category and then if you want to go really fast you buy a 450x or whatever maybe not a 450x but you, do you know what i mean we don't do it in that yeah. way at all we kind of leave that to people to figure out themselves and it creates that situation where you have lots of people buying the wrong bike first and then pedaling back to the bike where they should be at 
and then starting that journey or, in reverse again. Or losing their confidence and falling out of the, the sport altogether because they've got the wrong bike at the start. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we've seen that with loads of people, and it's a shame when that happens. And I, I think it's actually a little bit of a problem for the motorcycle industry. You know, we, or they always talk at, at motorcycle industry events these days about, you know, well, we're not, we haven't got the young people coming in. Um, and, and, you know, that was always the historic path. And you sort of did have that when, you know, when I was a kid, you had your PW50, your PW80, your RT100, and you rode those before you got on your first competition but I think fire breathing two strokes. You still kind of do have and that in like kids you, stuff you, because you have Yeah, exactly. Like but now there's so many people come, you know, there's so many more people coming into the, into motorcycling now, um, you know, in the middle years, <laughs> Whatever, whatever we want to call that, but you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, people starting their motorcycle journey, not starting it at five years old. And you're absolutely right. They're then, you know, there's then a dearth of that sort of information. Or, or if there is, if there is something that's a beginner bike, it's like the motorcycle world looks down on you if you've bought that beginner bike, and 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 it totally shouldn't be that way around. It should be like that's awesome. Someone's coming to biking. We love biking. We love more. You know, we love people enjoying the same journey that we learn to enjoy. So why shouldn't they start off on a, you know, a CB five hundred and? But I, I think or that, a, that is also because the bikes that get shoehorned into the beginner category, in all honesty, are a bit can they're not, but they can be a bit shit. Do you know? In without swearing yeah, too much, but yeah. like it. And I, I use the the parallel of like snowboarding here is that like I've got what you would call I'm an intermediate snowboarder. I snowboard okay, but someone who is really good in your own humble opinion. No, in my, in my I, if, if if my opinion was humble, I'd be an expert. You know, I don't know if you know, but I can do black runs and stuff. I can't. I'm terrible. Um, but the my my point is is like someone who is really good could get on my snowboard and for the most part have like go really well on it. But snowboarding in general is a really recreational sport where 99.9% of people that do it go on holiday a couple of times a year, piss around on the mountain and go home. And for some reason in motorcycling, especially more off-road geared stuff, everything we do points towards racing. Like there's nothing about snowboarding at a consumer level that points towards competition level unless you're like quite enthusiastic about snowboarding and then you might be into freestyle. I don't remember the last person I met that cared about who won a, a snowboard race, but even ski racing in the general public has very little impact on the product that a, a normal consumer buys. Most people would buy a ski that's designed for everything, an adventure bike style ski, it, nothing, there's no correlation between the two and so you have like a really different relationship with it whereas when you buy a consumer a beginner buy a crf 250l or cb 500x the suspension is crap the brakes are crap the balance is really bad the the ergonomics are just i don't know like a crf 250l is a great bike in terms of what it is and how much it costs but in terms of the grand scheme of motorbikes the ergonomics suck they're like from 1980 do you know the tank is huge the seat has a really big step in the front of it you can't sit in a good position and so it weighs a ton and yet a really good beginner bike would be if you took something like a husky fe 250 but 
And maybe like a Beta X trainer is a good example of this. If you took a Husky FE250 and you made the suspension travel 250 mil or 230 mil, but you kept the ergonomics the same, you still had decent quality suspension. There's some potential progression there. Whereas I think especially in adventure bikes and street bikes, that progression is is quite big leaps, you know, and that's what pushes people to buying bikes that are not fit for purpose. You still want your street bike to be comfortable if you live in Europe on the motorway. If you go and buy a CB500X and then you have to ride to London, it, it's like horrific from, from where you live or yeah. where I live, three hours on the motorway. It's a horrific experience because it's so undergeared. It doesn't need to be undergeared. It's just there's some well, decisions the only way that go on. Is when you put it in the van. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you can do it. And there's lots of bikes you can do it on. That's obviously the point of a motorcycle is you can do anything. But there's the compromises always feel so big. You know, the gap between uh, a CB500X at five grand and a KTM 790 Adventure R at 11 grand is monumental in in every aspect. You know, I would happily sit on the motorway on most 11 grand adventure bikes. I can take all of them pretty much bar the F850GS off-road really well. That was a little dig there. Uh, and... And the level of them is really high. But if you want to make that more beginner friendly, a little bit lighter, a little bit smaller, it chops masses off those bikes. And it's a really strange decision that it's a, it's not a strange decision. It's an interesting paradigm that the motorcycle industry has. So the other point that we talked about, as well as just like lowering the bike and the suspension circling background is in the way that people lower suspension, I think is massively important because you see it done really well and you see it done really badly. And the effects of that a bit like bar rises are a bit lost on people. I think sometimes, do you know, and we know this from, from racing dirt bikes, especially if you move one part of the suspension by five mil, horrific things happen to the handling or wonderful things but the gap is huge right so I, well the, the best example of that is the you know two, two when when you start going racing a dirt bike like um you know two you know we we know from with a dakar bike or an enduro bike you move the fork two millimeters in the clamps and it takes it from a bike that is sharp handling on the hard pack to unrideable in the sand and vice versa. So, well, you know, the you two mil, then the classic well, way right? most people, yeah, and the classic way most, well, that's, yeah, true, good, yeah, of course. Any any bike, if you move it two mil higher or lower in the clamps, it totally, totally changes the handling dynamic. Um, and that's why that is a, an adjustable feature for most bikes. Um but, you, you know, then that's a classic thing is people make the bike lower by just moving the forks as far as they can up through the clamps, 20, 30 mils. And it actually, you know, they and realize it, but the handling's then dangerous. So, of course, it's really important, you know, and that's why a lot of the manufacturers now on the opposite side to what you just said, you know, most of the manufacturers now are offering a low chassis option where they've lowered the suspension and then at least you're relying on the fact that they've maintained their handling as best they can. Well, you say that, that, but it, I, I think that that like, factory option completely lowered front and rear thing is a bit of a BMW thing. I, a lot of them do lowering kits where they lower the shock through the linkage. 
but yep. but that doesn't solve the problem that makes the shock low which makes yeah. the seat height low but then you have like a really raked out bike that's longer and i think you even get this with like a, a 1250 gs when you ride the the short version the low suspension version versus the normal version versus the super duper tall suspension version those are three different handling bikes even though they're almost yep. identical because the wheelbase changes right like if you lower yeah. the bike the effective wheelbase is is different different handling bike but if you just lower the linkage you make the suspension on the rear 30 mil shorter like the opposite of what you just said and you don't shorten the fork as well to make them ratio the make the ratio the same you have a horrendous handling bike and then it kind of begs the question of when when brands make a lower spec version say if you took a tiger 900 and you buy the the cheapest version of the off-road tiger and you've got simpler suspension and it's lower i don't know if the tiger is actually lower or like the 750 gs versus the 850 gs there's no beginner progression there either, do you know? So you're you're compromising so much on the suspension quality because you go to like, with the BMW, you go to this fork that's from 1984 off an XR400 and you've given up so much to get the seat height lower that your bike is just then not as good. You've paid nearly as much for it. Yeah, but... But then again, you know, that's my point is that that's sort of the motorcycling journey a little bit. And, you know, when you're when you're needing the smaller, shorter, lower bike to and and the more important thing for you at that point is confidence and building confidence. um, You you know, you're not going to have as good a suspension or ground clearance. And that's fine because you don't need those things at that point. I think what's really, really important is that you. You know, you take into your mindset that this is part of your motorcycling journey and you're starting off here to build confidence and you're going to, you know, work on building that confidence and, you know, not get yourself stuck in, I need a short bike because I can't touch the ground and I need both feet flat on the ground. You know, work on those skill sets that allow you to progress to then end up confident on the bike that's got the the higher performance because you're now looking for that higher performance. You know, that... That's the bit that um, you know, that we try to work on on the school, and and um, you know I, I like to see people do is is not you know not accept that I'm you know the only bike I can ever ride is an F750 GS because I can it's the only thing I can touch the ground on it's the only adventure bike I can ever have because I'm because I'm scared and of course you're scared at the start scared is not a nice word but you know we're we're all whenever we start a new skill set it's daunting and challenging mm. and accept those things are daunting and challenging and go, okay, this is what I need now. Cause I'm a, going through this journey of, of building confidence, but make sure you do those, you know, those important steps getting a little bit off topic here, but you know, the stuff that we know works of building that confidence of weight shift and one foot down and, you know, turning the handlebars, little amounts, those little trick tips and tricks that, that allow that confidence to build because you've got this goal and this aspiration that I'm going to be comfortable and confident on this bike that's got the performance to, and I can use that performance and benefit from it. You know, that that's, that's for me, the important part of the journey is sort of accepting I'm here now, but I'm going to be over there in 
however long that takes that's different for all of us but you you know and and when you're at the beginning of that journey of course there's compromise because you don't have the confidence so you need that you know you, you need that uh extra help to build the confidence and that extra help comes from the comfort of, of being a bit lower but that will go away you know it goes away for everyone mm. but it goes away more quickly if you work on making it go away because you work these little skill skits that take that that doubt out of your mind and you know and also then you've got the excitement that you know how long have we been riding bikes and always one of the most exciting conversations we have every year is like what bike am i going to get next and we're, we're, we're like, oh, should I have a 250, a 350, or 450 kind of thing? You know, they're, they're small things, but they're exciting. You know, those things yeah. are exciting changes. And and then you've got, you know, straight away in your motorcycling journey, you've already got this kind of path of like, I want to go from a, you know, a 750 to a 1250 is a easy analogy. Or How very corporate of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's an easy, easy trip off the tongue of it. But, um, yeah, that, that's that's kind of the message for me is that, uh, of course, there's going to be limitations to a low chassis bike. And I agree with you, there's better ways there's better ways to get that low chassis. And some of the manufacturers are doing it in better ways and some of the aftermarket companies are doing it in better ways. But I'm not actually too focused on that. I'm more focused on let's follow that, our own personal journey, really. Oh, how very philosophical of you. So... Uh, we managed to spend uh, 21 minutes talking about low seats and suspension there. Um, and I'd like to... Yeah, but I slowly that, did seven of Yeah, I was going to say, I'd like to blame you for that, but I think I was very much uh, in the problem creature. So, last podcast note before we ask our last question. We're a bit tight on time. We were aiming for an hour here, but uh, getting a bit close. Does bike weight matter? Now, this is the single... I don't know if any of you watched it, but Adventure Bike of the Year was something we were very lucky to do last year. And it started out as this idea where I was like, let's see, regardless of what engine size you've got, Adventure Bikes are all working towards the same goal of being pretty good at most things. So is one of them better than all the others? If we're going to give out an award, let's just test the best ones. Doesn't really matter. The comments would have you believe that weight is the single biggest determining factor in how bad a 1250GS is and that we are all wrong. And so my question is, does bike weight matter? And what are the, pro the limitations that come at either end of the spectrum? You can start because also oh, so again again you're setting me up to be battered by the internet <laughs> well i asked the question you could have asked the question and then i could have answered it i mean we can swap it around if you want you can ask me that question now and i can start okay <laughs> does bike weight matter llewellyn yes but no <laughs> So let me preface this. I, okay, it's been a great podcast today, guys. Uh, so we'll see you back here same time next month. <laughs> so I am going to say, uh, yes, it does matter because physics matters. Einstein taught us that. You cannot get away from physics. But what you can do is make a motorcycle that handles really well. And then you can hide the fact that your bike is heavy 
And if you make a motorcycle that handles really badly, you can accentuate the fact that your bike is not as heavy as other bikes and make it worse. And so I, I think really the two bikes that have massively shown that bike weight does matter for me are the Tenere 700 and the uh, 790 Adventure. And it's really interesting because one of the Tenere is lighter than the 790, but they do things very differently. And then at the far end of the spectrum, you have a 1250 GS. And beyond that, you have your kind of super adventure style bike. So the 1250 Adventure, the KTM 1290 Super Adventure, the Ducati Multistrader. And those are stratospherically heavy adventure bikes. They're all over 250 kilos. Uh, and when you ride those bikes and then you ride the equivalents that are lighter, so if you go from a 1250 Adventure to a 1250 Standard, you notice the weight difference dramatically, right? They're basically the same bike, but one is harder to ride. And it shows itself in slow speed and off-road and on-road. You have to be more careful. You have to be cognizant of the fact they're heavy. I don't think you would argue with that, would you? You know, when you teach on the school, a 1250 adventure, more difficult to ride than a standard 1250. When you jump between the two, you notice it straight away. But one, yeah. for me, the, the conversation of does weight matter, I, I, would, I would fundamentally say that while it does make a huge difference to what a bike is capable of, what makes more difference than the weight is how you set that bike up. And a really good example of that, when you... Uh, on a minute level, when you take a Tenere 700 and you ride it in slow speed or technical situations right next to a KTM 790, the weight is almost parallel. The weight distribution is completely different. So the Tenere is high, fuel tank really high up, tall bike with squidgy suspension. And then you have a 790 where the weight is a tiny bit more weight distribution is much lower the fuel is really evenly distributed across the middle of the bike and the suspension is really stiff what you end up with is one bike that feels very comfortable being maneuvered at slow speed right like i'm sure you would agree with this the, te the 790 is very manageable even though it's tall because the weight doesn't move and it's low and then you have the Tenere 700 where the weight's a bit taller and the suspension's squidgy and it sits up and it wallows around a little bit. And as soon as you get to that point where it feels tall, it's a bit unwieldy. And even though it's really light, it, it's a bit strange how it feels and it gets away with it more because it's light. When you take that same conversation, this really shone in that group test that we did. When you take that to, a C, to the Africa Twin CRF1000L, 15 kilos lighter than a 1250 GS, but the suspension is like blancmange. The weight is really tall and it makes the bike feel super heavy. It's not as heavy, but it makes it feel unwieldy. And when you compare that to a 790 KTM, it's stratospheric how different they are in weight, right? Like the it's 30, 25 kilos or something but it feels even more. And I think with a 1250 GS, the, it, it gets away with the weight it has because it's stiff, essentially. You know, when you sit on a 1250, because of the way the suspension is designed by having two swing arms, they can make it different. It doesn't wallow about as much, the weight doesn't change as much, and the weight balance is low. 
on the bike, center of gravity is really low. So you're hiding that quite a lot. Now, one of the interesting things that I think about this subject is I'm not just talking about bikes being too heavy. When I put this question down, what I had in my mind is one of the most common things I see on the internet is, yeah, but this bike should weigh like 150 kilos. I'm sure you've got some insight on this as well, but I don't think that's a good thing in an adventure bike. Yeah, it's it's the statistician in all of us that wants to, you know, the internet's strong for this, isn't it? Is it that horsepower, horsepower and weight, like historically in motorcycle, those two things have been the two most important things in any brochure. Um, you know what what's got the most power what's got the least weight and you know in in practice in the real world those things are almost irrelevant when you know when you ride bikes and compare bikes that that's actually not what gives you the good feeling in the end you, you know and if you go to dirt bike world a great example is you can take a 250 a 350 and 450 and actually they're technically 1 kilogram difference across that across that range but you wouldn't, if no one told you that, you definitely wouldn't know that when you ride those three bikes. They feel dramatically different in the way they, they, they handle. And, and it's, you know, this is where the engineers spend a lot of time and they're very clever people that um, work out what that best compromise is to make the, the bike feel the best and perform the best. And sometimes, you know, less horsepower makes a bike feel lighter as well, et cetera, et cetera. There's a million parameters in there. So just measuring those two uh, flagship numbers is in my opinion a waste of time i would rather not know what they are um an, another little lovely example was uh, our good friend fellow instructor mr chris northover has in his garage a 1150 gs and uh the first generation 1200 gs which actually has been one of the lightest uh, adventure bikes for a long time gs's have got heavier um so that first generation 1200 gs with no abs or anything on it the basic one was actually 199 and uh yeah and obviously the 1150 was 742.4 yeah i mean his is a gsa as well kilos so yeah so so he went on a bit of a, a bit of a mission and tried to make that 1150 the same weight as the 1200 and he did it he by taking everything off it that he could basically um and thought he was on a proper winner there and then went out and rode them back to back and sure enough the 1200 still feels dramatically lighter to ride than the 1150 even though they're now the same weight because you know all the other things have moved on you know the way the bike the chassis works the suspension works the way it's got more power but the way it delivers it and and all that stuff you, you know it's all those parameters that are far more important so when you sit there and go oh that bike's too heavy on the internet i i just say i'll ride it <laughs> and i think you know, but i think within that conversation if you take a bike and make it lighter it is easier for it to handle well it's easier yeah, for the system yeah, to work well but weight i think the overwhelming point there is weight isn't the defining characteristic of what's going to make a bike well it helps no but it's not it's not the be all and, and end all and i think it's not the be all and end all and it's you know another great example of that is if you look at factory dakar bikes these days there's no question that they can make them lighter than they actually are if they wanted to but they they there's sort of an optimum 
like like you said, you can go too light as well. There's an optimum weight once you start going fast, you know, to to, to get that stability and handling. And yes, it might you know, a lighter bike's great when you're in uh, when you're in a well wet slippery forest. No question, I want a light bike. But when you're going through a you know a rock field at high speed, then a little bit of, a little bit of mass and a little bit of weight, you know, gives you that stability. Well, I discovered this quite quite. Uh, significantly a few years ago when we went to the last time I went to Ceres Rally I rode it uh, as a little bit of a project bike with uh, another website called Enduro 21 it's run by a really good friend of mine Um, and I rode a 250F at that rally and it is entirely possible to ride a 250F at a rally but it does not handle like a 450 like even though like you said that why that WR250F in stock trim is is two fifty uh, one fifteen kilos. So I don't know what's that like two hundred and forty pounds or something, um, which is exactly the which is more heavy than a standard Husky four fifty, which you had. I probably made it about the same. You know, by the time I took off a bunch of those stock parts and and put better things on there, it was a bit lighter, maybe two twelve something like a one twelve. Uh, but it, it didn't handle good. Like the suspension on that bike as stock is really good, but it was way too skittish. Do you know, it bounced off everything all the time when you're on the throttle, when you're high in the revs, it just doesn't work. And I, I we, me and Lucy, when we made the ice and travel film had the same problem. KTM 690 is a, is 145 kilos. It's a really light adventure bike, but the 790 was a significantly better bike in every scenario other than the 1% where it suddenly got really technical. We're in a riverbed or something. And for her, it was easier to ride the 690 because she's more of a beginner. But the rest of the time, anytime we were on a dirt road, it, it beat both of us up because it's too light. It's skittish. The wind blows it around. All the bumps come through the chassis because it's literally not designed to do that it doesn't have the weight to push through and when we're talking about an adventure bike i think there's a value to that like when you ride a a a 200 kilo bike versus 150 kilo bike the experience and the plushness and the way they push through everything is significantly nicer on the heavier model and that's why you'll never see someone go desert racing on a 350 a 350 to a 450 you can make the power difference is is a couple of horsepower right like even in stock trim your my 350 is 48 and your 450 or that you had was 42 but your current 350 is a motocross bike it makes 60 horsepower like the power is not the issue is it it's the way nah. it makes the power and the other characteristics that make it better for different types of riding. And I think that's really more important than weight. We're going to explode the YouTube yeah. comment section with that as a snippet. Like, it is going <laughs> to have a meltdown. I don't know if anyone follows them, but you pointed out earlier, and I've seen it, 44 Teeth, another YouTube channel. They do a lot of street bike stuff. Very funny, very British, very 1990s probably some loot jokes in there but they've started a, a whole thing about posting pictures of their youtube comments on facebook it's very funny they get some quality comments uh as do we so my last point we have blown through we're going to put a four minute cap on this to, to keep it to one hour ten we've blown through our hour 
section by the time I've done an intro. Wow. So last question. What does your ideal ADV bike look like? And if you just say a 1250 GS, I'm just going to hang up on you and just dump it out. Cause... I'm good. I should never mean to go to 1250 GS. <laughs> Thanks for coming, guys. No, let's be realistic. Like, it, you know, if, if, you could, if you could make your perfect bike for adventure style riding, the adventure riding you do, which is mostly, I would call it long enduro. It's not really... You know, you're not riding around the world. You're using your adventure bike for long rides out in the countryside where you do a bit of everything because riding your dirt bike is a bit crap for that. Yeah. So what would, what would you build? Barry. You know you, you know what I'm going to say. I love that new 1250 GS with this sports suspension. But when you it's think, so good. When you think about it, like in comparison to HP2 or all of the characteristics of other bikes you've ridden, what would you pull together? Sorry, I think. I think. But you, you, yeah, I don't know how I can do this in four minutes. But you, you know, you know, for me, that yeah, that kind of adventure riding I do and I like to do is is um, you know, it, it is kind of quite all round, I guess. You know, I I want something that's going to put a smile on my face every time I have to be on a bit of tarmac again and doing some twisty tarmac and um, and you know, something that's going to make me smile on every kind of off-road terrain whether it's just sat there on a big wide dirt road like smashing out distance which is strangely fun um or whether it's going yeah through some technical single track like that that's what i want my adventure bike to be i want it to take me you know my my favorite one which i missed out on this year thanks to thanks to covid is you know we do this trip all the way across australia from one side to the other and that's the dream you know and for that you need something that's comfortable because there's some days where you've got you know, you're going to be on the bike all day. You're going to do 12, 14 hours riding. And then there's other days where we've got only a hundred Ks to ride because it's like super, super fun, technical down a, down a sandwash, you know, or, or not sandwash, like a river, riverbed kind of thing. And, um, yeah, I want something that's all around and going to put not, you know, I'm not looking for a race bike. I'm looking for something that's going to make me smile every day, no matter what's coming. And, um, I think there's a lot of bikes that fit that bill. And I think, that's sort of again the joy of adventure motorcycling isn't it is changing your bike up every now and again and riding something different and yeah i mean i i love the fact that in that world now you know adventure bike world there is new stuff coming out all the time and they are you know all the manufacturers are striving to make their bikes better and better and better and i joke about the 1250 gs with sports suspension but like that only came out the year before last and the thing's fantastic, and I don't know how they keep. I remember having this conversation back in 1150 GS days, like what what can they do to make this bike better? But they, you know, those smart engineers, they they do just make them a little bit better every year, and it, it's it's not massive leaps, but it's always just a little bit better every year, and I I kind of love that that you get a new one and it's just that little bit better, and so they're, I, they're almost you know I, I I'm going to interrupt you slightly there because yeah. we've got 10 seconds left. But well, you you asked a stupid question. <laughs> no, but I think your point is good. Is that like it's a great bike? But I have I have a proposal out there, which is obviously never very easy to achieve. But if you took a KTM seven ninety Adventure R with the suspension you just tested it on, the Explore Pro, yeah, that's your chassis. Ergonomics pretty good, really good off road. Nothing in the way. Dude. 
I'm going to stop you there because we did these conversations back in the 80s. If you take the rear suspension off uh, no, RM125, no, no, no. I'm saying the whole the chassis. The CR500 and this off that and this off that. And guys went and built those bikes yeah, but, and they were always shit. No, but you've got to, we're talking about characteristics <laughs> Doesn't work. and holistic Back things. to the whole thing we just said about weight is that it's the package and those engineers are smart people. That package that they pull together. Is, is what works. It doesn't work saying I want this off of this bike and this off this bike. It's just not a thing. No, but you got to hear me out here, man. Just the no, holistic no. ideas. So I I love that KTM chassis. I think it's fantastic. You've ridden it. it it's really yeah. good. Like it handles them on-road and off-road a peach. Wind protection, bit crappy. Comfort, bit crappy. Eh, you know, you wouldn't want to ride it forever. But if you could improve that a little bit, bring that bit up. But then the engine for me on the 790, I'm excited to ride the 890 for this reason. The engine, especially low down in the RPM, lacking. Triumph Tiger 900, the review is coming out shortly, probably next week. That engine was good. That is a good engine. Super easy to ride, fun got the characteristics of a 10 or a 700 in there and how playful it is, but a way, way stronger. That engine in a KTM 790 style package with a super good suspension, there's no, like that bike, it sounds like the dream. Yeah, but this is, this is, another, this is another podcast. We're going to end it here. Because, uh, um, but you know, this is another podcast. Because what you've just actually talked about is basically taking the, uh, you know, the 790 KTM after marketing the hell out of it. You like the suspension, so you're going to put a different pipe on it, remap the engine, put a bigger screen on it, put a bigger seat on it, and then you've got your bike you want. Any bike. No, exactly. And that's what I was going to say. You just said it needed a bigger screen. You're going to. I put no, a bigger I screen and make a it shit. Screen. I said better <laughs> wind protection. Those are different. A things. better wind protection. Those are different. And and you know, or you take your. I don't know what you're going to say about the Triumph. You take your Triumph. You love the engine. You're going to do something with the suspension. You can do all those things. You know, that's that's a different. That's a different conversation. And again, that's the joy of owning your own bike and blinging it up to suit yourself. Or you could just go and buy that 1200 GS and do nothing and be happy. No, but it's <laughs> but it's 50 kilos too heavy. Is it? Have you ridden one? <laughs> no, I, and I agree. You know, we talked about this. The 1250 manages its weight amazingly. What if it was 50 kilos lighter? Well, then it'd be the same weight as when you bolted all that crash protection on. Uh... <laughs> no, but you don't need to on a 790. That's why the chassis is good. No crash protection yeah. required. Comes maybe a yeah. slightly thicker sump guard, but comes awesome. No, yeah. so, so no, I, 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 that's just, for me, it's just back to the point. Enjoy. Enjoy your bike. No, that's you not know. what this is about, man. This is like forum level conversation. Argue with me. <laughs> I have. And now I'm out. So, no, my last point was going to be I'm leaving. remember the HP2. 100, 200 kilos dry, a wet, sorry, wasn't it? It was like, what, 199 or 199? HP2 was like 170, actually. Dry. Yeah, okay. And that yeah. was also in the era of our uh, questionable curb weights before the EU stepped in and made it law that it had to be a certain way. You know, so we, nobody really it's, knows because there's a hundred different weights out there. I'll go and weigh the one in the garage and tell you. Yeah, but imagine if you're 1250 with your sports suspension and your great chassis and everything weighed somewhere in the ballpark of that. 
You wouldn't have to put your back yeah. out to pick it up. No, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, you don't you don't know how that bike works until you do that because you know the HP two, what a what a thing for sure, no question. But you, you know, it of course it had its downsides as well. Like it handled best when you attacked all the time, for example. Well, that's because the fork angle is like. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, well, it was about four degrees, isn't it? You know, most bikes are what sixty-five, and that one had the slack. It was like a chopper front fork. But anyway, that's yeah. a whole different conversation. You know, yeah. that was fantastic. Thank you for talking to me about the internet things. I'm sure we can find some more internet things. Maybe that's what we should call this podcast. Break magazine <laughs> does internet things, uh, and find some more topics to talk about. If you've got topics you would like us to discuss in another one of these episodes, pop them in the comments, Patreon. Uh, that would be fantastic because I'm sure we can cast some wise and poorly formed arguments uh, in both equal measures to talk about this. It's been a pleasure. This was an hour and 15 minutes and counting when it was supposed to be an hour and we cut one of the topics out. So thank you very much for your time, Father. It's been a pleasure. No worries. I always love a good argument with you. But yeah, thank you very much. Catch you on the flip side. <laughs>